So Rich goes on holiday and gives me this kind of passage <laughs> to preach on. Uh, thank you, Clive. It is, it is, on the surface, rather complicated. Um, but um, I think it's one of those things that, if we get our heads around, it's actually quite wonderful. And it, um, it takes our faith and our understanding of Jesus to a whole new level. Um, we were camping last week with you know, a few other thousand people in, in Peterborough showground, um, which was good fun. Hands up if you like camping. A few people. Uh, so if you're used to camping, uh, you'll know that one thing you get used to is the kind of zipping up of tents, the rehammering back in of pegs. Um, but it's only when you've, you kind of arrive on your site and you plonk your tent down and you unzip it, you get all your bits out, you start to put your poles together and you put the whole thing up. It's when you begin to pull these constituent parts together that this flat bag of fabric becomes something substantial. It becomes a shelter. It becomes something that you can sleep in that keeps you safe from the elements. You can cook in there, stay dry, um, occasionally stay away from the insects. Um, and what we're reading about today, what, these two readings that we have, um, it's a very, quite a complex biblical theme that breezes past us in the book of Genesis. There's three verses in Genesis that talk about this figure of Melchizedek, and it re-emerges again in Psalm 110. And then again in Hebrews, we get the same kind of reference again. And it's only when we begin to kind of lay this flat pack out, when we begin to pull these things together, when we, when we assemble the parts and look at them side by side, we, we find value in this kind of biblical typology. So in, in one way, this, this king priest, uh, Melchizedek, we read, we read about him in, in Genesis, and he's a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of the Christ that is to come. But then the other way around, when we read Hebrews, we discern that Jesus is also a type of this person, this, this king priest who we've read about right at the beginning of scripture. And in Psalm 110, David, who is um, he's dwelling on this passage, um, my tablet keeps turning itself off, which isn't helpful on such a complex biblical theme. Um, Psalm 110, David's dwelling on this, this mysterious chosen one of God. Um, I'll hold it up like this. And he begins to connect uh, this, this figure who's given three, he's devoted to three verses in the Bible. Um, and he begins to connect Melchizedek, this king priest who just randomly appears to Abraham in the Old Testament, to this hope, this glorious hope in the future of a Messiah, a savior, a king who's gonna come and rescue Israel from all its suffering, all its problems, all its self-inflicted iniquity. And yes, apart, and when you look at these in, in, in silos, these connections, these prophecies, they remain quite abstract. We easily gloss over them, we move past them, they don't find much substance. But when we, when we begin to pull them together, when we zip them up, when we hammer the tent pegs in, when we zip up those compartments and we begin to identify this thing as a whole, we encounter something wonderful about the mission of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And often we can leave the, the kind of application of sermons to the very end. Um, I might bring some kind of substance and some biblical teaching. And then at the very end, 
I can try and suggest how this applies to our ordinary lives. You know, what on earth has Melchizedek got to do with me today? But right from the offset, I just wanted to say that as followers of Jesus, this, this might be common sense to you, but all I want to say that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as the church of Jesus Christ, that the richer our knowledge of him, the greater our appreciation of him. And the greater our appreciation of him, the greater our worship of him will be. And the greater our worship of him will be, the greater we will experience personally the transformation that the gospel promises and the outworking of God's plans and purposes through our lives and into the wider world around us. So I just wanted to assert right from the beginning that just learning about Jesus in itself is application for our lives. And I want us to understand that the Bible in its whole, not just uh, you know, little snippets from the New Testament that sound great and are easy to understand, but that the Bible as a whole, this general revelation of God that's been passed down generations and generations and generations is central to us in understanding the breadth and the wonder of God's plans throughout all of creation, which obviously find their, their climax and their ultimate meaning in the person of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. See, much of who Jesus was, much of the things he said, much of the themes he introduced and the parables he told, much of these kind of threads that we're talking about today, they, they find their origins and their values in the Old Testament. If we're not willing to pick up our Old Testament and read it and get to know it and grapple with it, then we can't fully understand Jesus, the God that we sing about, the God that we worship, the God that we profess to have faith in. So my prayer for us this morning, and as I was writing this and preparing this and praying about this, that may God make this clear, may God make this digestible and understandable and applicable for us today. And as we do that, may the Holy Spirit come and help this to be powerful and relevant for our lives and our age today. I went to the Commonwealth Games yesterday. Did I go yesterday, Brian? I've lost track of days. Or the day before. Thursday. It started on Thursday and I went Friday morning. That sounds right. What day is it today? Um, has anybody else got tickets to the Commonwealth Games? Has anybody been to anything yet? A few people. Brilliant. So I, we went, um, it's great just being up the road, isn't it, in Birmingham. We, we jumped on a train first thing on um, Friday morning. Um, I was sat with my, my daughter, Annie, and you know those little booths on the train where sometimes they have tables in the middle, but you've got, you're kind of facing each other. And Annie just turned to me in one of her little moments, and she said, Daddy, you are going backwards, and I'm going forwards. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, that's, that's great. And I had, this, I had this stuff whirring around in my head. Um, I was thinking about what I was going to talk to about, you know, what I was going to talk to you about this morning. And it, and it just struck me that as I looked out my window, the train was coming this way, and I had this big, expansive view of the territory and the landscape and the buildings and the people that we were leaving behind. You know, I saw the journey as we, we were moving away from it. Annie was sat on the other seat, and she had this perspective of the whole journey that lies ahead of us. She could see where we're going. She saw the future. She saw what was, you know, where the train was going in its destination. And obviously, we were both present in that moment. We both sat in the same carriage. We were both going the same direction, but we both had very different perspectives on where we were going. And I was, I was thinking about Psalm 110, you know, this, this series that we're talking about now, which I probably should have said at the beginning, is Jesus in the Psalms. 
And it seems to me that Psalm 110, is, it's almost like that train carriage. It's the immediate moment that, that the king of Israel, David, finds himself in. He's looking backwards at some of the story of, of his people, but he's also looking forward in hope and expectation as to what is to come as well. So I want us to see something of, of David's perspective here, like that train carriage, the coming together of past and present and future. And as we read through Psalm 110, you might have, the first verse might have sounded quite familiar to you um, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in Matthew 22. Jesus quotes this verse to the Pharisees who were questioning him on the, the lineage of the Messiah, you know, when this Savior is going to come and rescue Israel from these Roman oppressors. Um, the doctrine of his day was that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of King David. And Jesus challenges them and he says, well, actually, if David calls the Messiah Lord, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, if, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You won't call your son Lord. How does that work? And it says in, the, in, in Matthew that all the Pharisees and teachers, that they were astounded by the wisdom of Jesus here. And it, it got me thinking, we, we, we might view this Psalm 110 of something of a foreshadowing of the vision that the Apostle Stephen had before he was stoned to death by the Jews in, in Acts 9. And, and Stephen says, look, I see the heavens opened before me and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus plays down this, this doctrine, this understanding within his own context that the Messiah would just merely be a strong and mighty descendant of King David, the hero of the Israelite people. But rather he suggests that there's something greater at work, there's something bigger at work going on here, something divine, something eternal, something Trinitarian, something where the Lord of Israel shares his own sovereignty with his only begotten son. And when we flick through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2, just after Pentecost, you might remember that Peter gives this like, astounding sermon to these mass crowds of people that have gathered around. And, and Peter quotes Psalm 110 as well. And he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, this Jesus of Nazareth to life. And we were all witnesses of it. The apostles, those who followed him, his disciples, we were witnesses to this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear around you now, the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend to heaven, but yet he said, and this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So what we see is that immediately as, as the New Testament church begins to think and imagine the Old Testament story that they were used to, that they probably memorized, that was ingrained in their identity, that the apostles began, as they were teaching and bringing the gospel to people, that they began to reintroduce, to re-understand, to reappropriate the writings of the Old Testament to satisfy their faith that they had encountered in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. 
because of their experience of his life, his ministry, the miracles, uh, the wonderful things he did, the things he taught and said, they were utterly convinced that he was the promised Messiah and the Son of God. And it's that, that's the apostolic faith that we stand upon today. We, are, we see ourselves as the apostolic church of God because we continue this faith, we continue this belief that was testified to by those who were there right at the beginning. And so on this, this train journey through Scripture, we see how looking backwards and looking forwards is, is necessary, really, for us to comprehend the unimaginable works of God. Where we've come from, where we are now, and where this is all going. And then in that same first verse, we have uh, this imagery of a footstool. And the footstool imagery is, is uh, it's a metaphor, and it would have been a metaphor for, for the first century Jewish context. It would have been a metaphor for the ancient Near East as well, for absolute control. This isn't a comfy footstool that you sit in front of your TV with your feet on. This is a symbol of absolute control. And it reminded, has anybody seen the film 300? No? Great film. Oh, a few people. Uh, the Spartans, isn't it? Um, under siege by this, this big, powerful Persian empire. And there's the character in that who's, who's the, king, the god king, really, of the, the Persian empire, Xerxes. And it's a very arty film, and it's, it's probably very um, exaggerated in many ways. I think it communicates this, this imagery of the footstool, because um, you'll see him portrayed very much like a divine figure, a, a king but a god to his people. And there's, there's a few instances where he's been carried around on his throne by people, you know, there's a moment he climbs down from his throne, and as he's stepping down from his throne, people are kind of acting as steps. You know, they bend down, and they act as steps so he can walk down from his throne. And it's this very kind of powerful, dominant imagery um, of, of a conqueror, of a godlike conqueror who will use human beings as his footstool. It's a symbol of complete and utter control. And although we, as New Testament believers, can confidently say that Jesus does not exert his power in this kind of self-aggrandizing and despotic way. Psalm 110 tells us that the Messiah, the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, will share absolute sovereignty with God the Father. Where the Jews of Jesus' time were longing and thirsting for a, a mighty warlord kind of figure who would come kind of like Xerxes, I suppose, to come and redeem Israel from all the oppression of the Romans and all the abuse. Um, Jesus brought something radically different to the scene. We've heard of the upside-down gospel. Jesus brought something radically different, but even more powerful than a king sat on his throne with his feet on a slave. And he did this through his own death and his own resurrection. Verse 2 and 3, they continue to build on this theme of absolute control, but it, it begins to communicate a, a reign that actually exerts its authority, not just between the Israelite people, but within foreign nations and foreign territories and foreign lands as well, um, which would have been the ambition of these, kind of, uh, these big empires uh, to go and conquer and have dominion over foreign nations as well. And again, in the context of David, as he wrote Psalm 110, and probably within the hopes and dreams of the first century uh, Jewish context, they would most likely have longed for this literal regional dominance and sovereignty for God's people. Because don't forget, when we read about Abraham uh, back in Genesis, 
Don't forget the promises that God made to Abraham and his, and his family. It was one where he was promised a land. He was promised countless offspring. Abraham was promised that through him a great and powerful nation would arise, a blessed people. And look where they were when Jesus arrived on the scene. They were oppressed. Romans had control of their territories. They had kings acting on behalf of them that they didn't appoint, that God didn't appoint. They were subject to foreign rule. This, this wasn't what God promised them. And so centuries later, generations later, they were thirsting and longing and hungering for this Messiah that, that David talks about in, in Psalm 110 to come and rule and reign over them, to break the chains of foreign oppression, to set them free to be God's people. But once again, in Jesus, we see a shift, a radical shift of perspective we get a more vibrant and more universal understanding of where this journey is heading to. As the Apostle Paul writes in, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Jesus will come in power to bring judgment. But this ultimately isn't to restore Israel to its, um, to its state of sovereignty and, to the, and, and its position of earthly power. But rather, this becomes magnified even more beyond the kind of geographical and the, the chronological boundaries that we might want to understand this stuff through. But it begins to reflect the end times. It begins to reflect this picture of eternity, this vision of God that is the renewal of all things. We talk about that here at All Saints, the renewal of all things and how we play our part in that. That is the vision that God is driving us towards. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then the end will come. When Jesus hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We get that language again. The last enemy to be destroyed, and listen to this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For Jesus has put everything under his feet. So this isn't about worldly powers and empires. This is about Jesus' victory over death. So for us, this is no longer a battle against enemies of blood and flesh. But as, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, he says, but this is actually a battle against cosmic powers of this present age, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Something big is happening here. And so on our train journey, sat in our carriage, today we, we see the perspective opening up. We see the, the landscape broadening in front of us. When we emerge from these valleys on our journey, the terrain becomes vast, it becomes blinding, it becomes incomprehensible. And so the vision of our destination now, sat in our carriage now, some thousands of years later, through our belief and our faith in Jesus Christ, this whole thing becomes so much bigger so much more beautiful, because we are headed towards eternity, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, where we will dwell in the literal presence of God, where there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more death, because Jesus himself, as we talked about earlier, Jesus himself has conquer, conquered the empires of death and sin. Amen to that. And so the final judgment will be the expression of God's absolute control through the Son. God will obliterate godlessness and evil, but he's going to establish something brand new. 
And the glorious thing about all this is that we are invited into this story. We are a part of this story that God is unfolding and unraveling around us. And again, if we draw upon Peter's sermon in Acts 2, um, he kind of sums this up for us. And he says, repent. He's talking to the crowds here that have amassed around him at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, and you, and you, and you, for all of us, for your children and for those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Who's with me so far? Doing well. This is proper meaty stuff, isn't it? Verse 4. <laughs> so verse 4, we, we, we come to this, this point where the significance of, of priesthood and this order of Melchizedek becomes a little bit more relevant. And I said earlier that we encounter Melchizedek right back in, in the book of Genesis. Um, in Genesis 14, uh, verse 17 through to 19, and it's, just very, it's a snippet. But obviously in the grander narrative of the Bible, it's quite significant. And this, this is what it says. It says, after Abraham, before he was, his name was changed to Abraham. So after Abraham returned from defeating Cado Lamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheveth. That is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most high God and he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham, Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And so in this very short section of the Bible, we read about a man who is both king and priest over his people. We, as we read through the, the, the Old Testament, we understand that for the Israelites, these were separate officers, there were separate orders. The king had his own responsibilities, the priests had their own responsibilities, the prophets did their own wacky wild thing elsewhere. But in this person of Melchizedek, these roles came together. He was a priest and a king over his people. We also see that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, and for me, that sparks uh, that, that God was doing things beyond what we understand to be just the Israelite people, that God was at work in the wider world around him, and people were worshipping him that perhaps we don't have the literature to understand and appreciate. We have that, that mention of bread and wine, and for me, that just makes my heart smile, because how significant is that for Jesus' ministry, the bread and the wine? How significant is that for us today as we celebrate the Eucharist? Uh, the broken body of our crucified saviour and the new covenant in his blood. And we also see that Melchizedek is, is a mouthpiece. He declares God's blessing and God's deliverance over Abraham, just as Jesus embodied the blessing and deliverance of God through his own ministry, his own death, and his own resurrection. And there's so much we can see just uh, these three verses, just by reading these three verses, that we're kind of tightening the guy ropes a little bit. It gives us a richer sense of what God is doing, what his agenda has always been for humanity. And in that second reading that, that Clive brought from Hebrews, it again sounds very complicated, and how do I get my head around that? 
we see another progression, another shift of the carriage. The author of Hebrews develops this scene and Psalm 110 in light of the gospel of Jesus. So David was longing for the time of Jesus to come. The author of Hebrews has now encountered the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he's reflecting on all that has been. He's looking backwards at the journey, and he's beginning to re-understand that for himself and, and for the people of his time. And he begins by distinguishing between the Levitical priests, the Levites, those who we read about in the Old Testament scriptures who ministered in the temple, they sacrificed animals, who ordered and presided over the worship life of our church, of the, of the, the church of the Old Testament. And he distinguishes between that and this, this kind of primitive priesthood of Melchizedek, this little mysterious glimmer of a priesthood um, through this, this king priest of Salem in Genesis 14. And what the author of Hebrews does, he, he connects the Levites and the priesthood there with the law of Moses, which, which is right. But he says that the, the law of Moses ultimately has proven to be ineffectual. It's failed to bring about perfection in anybody or anything. And so rather he endorses this, this otherly priesthood, this priesthood of Melchizedek as a better hope, an everlasting covenant whereby Jesus becomes our perfect, holy, eternal priest, our high priest, the one who always lives to intercede for us, who because of his own death and resurrection on the cross, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave has vanquished this requirement to sacrifice animals, to partake in these rituals and he simply calls us to faith. And so understanding Jesus in this order of Melchizedek, Jesus becomes our king. And Jesus also becomes our priest. Jesus rules over us. But Jesus also comes alongside us and ministers to us. And then the author of Hebrews, if you carry on reading his uh, the epistle there, he continues to encourage his readers to persevere in faith, because that's what this moment is all about, perseverance in faith, to have confidence in what we believe, to hold fast to our confession of hope, to continue meeting together, to resist sin. So this is our train carriage moment. This is us sat together, looking at what has been and looking at what is to come, sandwiched between the past in the present, observing and reflecting. And in the here and now, where we are today, we are called to live lives of obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus in the Psalms, I'd kind of want to go to, to the extent of saying we don't see Jesus in this Psalm because that's not what the author intended. But what we do see is a glimmer of Jesus on the horizon. But as we journey through the story of Scripture and we arrive at the horizon, we realize that there's so much more that lies ahead. A new landscape, this mysterious eternal terrain where we, as followers of Jesus, are called to be faithful watchful, holy people who bear witness to the good news of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might be familiar with these verses from Hebrews 12. I love these words from Hebrews 12. This is from the New Living Translation. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, 
Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily traps and trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. He disregarded its shame and now he is seated. We get the Psalm 110 language again here. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. So Jesus is the all-powerful king of the cosmos who has saved us from sin and death. Jesus is the author and pioneer of our faith, our high priest who offered himself for the sins of the whole world and through whom we receive this promised inheritance of eternity. I was, and I, as, as I was thinking about what, what does this mean for us today? What does this look like for us today? And I, was just, I had, still had that train journey in my mind. How far can I see in both directions? Am I willing to swap seats and see what lies either side of me? And I began to think about short-sightedness and long-sightedness and short-sighted, I had to get the NHS to figure out which, which way around it was. But short-sightedness causes distant objects to become blurred. So the things that are far off become blurry. We can't distinguish them, but we can see things up close. The other way around, long-sightedness affects the ability to see things that are close up to us. But we might be able to see things in the distance very clearly. And I was thinking, what does our prayer need to be today? As we grapple with these deep and profound theological, abstract, often issues of our, of our Bibles, you know, how do we wrap our heads around a God that is incomprehensible? And we need to pray today, and we need to seek after 2020 spiritual vision, this clarity of vision that looks forward and looks backwards, that we might become increasingly aware of the vastness the greatness of the God that we worship. We need to see and recall the things that lie off far ahead of us in the future, and we need to remember and hold tightly to the things that have gone before us as well. But we also need to be clear and wise, discerning people, faithful, godly people in the here and now. Conscious of ourselves, Conscious of God's presence. Conscious of our mission to the world around us. And conscious of all that God is doing through his spirit. If you're able, should we stand together? Let's pray. I'm going to invite uh, Tim and the, the worship team up.